0: our speaker this morning is jamie trussell jamie is a teaching pastor at harvest church and jamie we welcome you to our pulpit and pray that god's word will become strong through you as we know it always does when you come to minister to us well good morning first of ann how are we it's good to be with you if i'm going to play an away game as a preacher i certainly prefer it to be here this is a special church i got married To my beautiful wife Shanna here, and we have three wonderful kids. I think I heard my little girl in the back. She's the more charismatic trussel, so she's always in tune uh, with the Spirit. And so we have a four-year-old son, James, three-year-old son, Gabe, and then uh, God gave us a little girl back in February. So she's ten and a half months, and her name's Kyle, named after her mama, Shanna Kyle. And so uh, grateful that they're here this morning with us as well. And, and we, we attempt to this morning uh, essentially tie a bow on Advent. And so this first advent of Christ is coming, uh, God taking on flesh, which we celebrate for most of December uh, usually ended with the actual celebration of the birth of Christ on Christmas Day. We'll extend it a week this Sunday to, to really look at the story behind the story. That's what Paul gives us in Philippians chapter 2 verses five through eight, as so eloquently read by Jim Reardon, who I consider to be my spiritual father. I call him Big Papa, and so I wish that he would have just continued on with the sermon this morning. He has a much more profound reading voice, the Word of God, than I do. And so I have a little bit of redneck in in my twang. It's horrific to listen to on recording, so be grateful that you're here live and don't have to listen on any type of live stream or podcast this morning. I also did want to say a special thank you to Cole and Lynn. The Huffmans have been dear friends to my wife and I for almost a decade now. And so continue to be grateful for his impact in my life, both through his personal ministry to me and through his preaching. You certainly have a wonderful lead pastor here at First of Van. But Philippians 2, 5 through 8 is the story behind the story. It, Another way to think about that is it's the logistics behind uh, what happened when God came to earth as man. What was involved in that? There there are some things that went on before Christ comes as the baby in the manger. And that's what Paul gives us in Philippians chapter 2. Now, we don't have time to to frame the book of Philippians, to try to situate the text uh, in the best way contextually. uh, But just know this, that Paul's or one of his primary concerns For the church at Philippi is this, that they exist in love and unity with one another. Now, one of the best ways, or maybe in Paul's mind, the preeminent way to get them uh, catalyzed towards this uh, loving and unified existence is to point them towards Christ, but not in, in an ambiguous way, but specifically to Christ's humility. So if you would adopt this disposition... That if you would set your trajectory towards something, it wouldn't simply be uh, the person of Christ, but but here specifically would be Christ's humility. And what Paul holds to be the greatest example of humility in the entirety of human history is God taking on flesh. And so here when he says, have this mind among yourselves that is the mind of Christ Jesus, he's saying, I want you to look at this singular aspect of your Savior. I want you to look at everything that was involved in God becoming man. I want you to saturate yourself with the reality of the humility of that. Then I want you to take that type of humility and approximate it into all of your daily lines of living. Now as we walk through the text this morning we're gonna try to frame our time around three questions. Uh, uh, as we as we look at, at each verse uh, really 6 7 and 8 that there's some questions that we're going to draw out of that and it's my hope that uh, the spirit and its illuminating power and convicting power would bring those questions home to us in some powerful ways this morning. So that will frame our time that we have and I hope that by God's kindness and power it will be a blessing to all of us. If you would, go with me before the Lord in prayer and then we'll begin to walk through Philippians 2, 5-8. God, we do pause to acknowledge that the Bible is from you. And since it is from you, it is authoritative, it's trustworthy uh, that every word in it has been ordained and arranged for a specific purpose and we pray that in your kindness to us this morning that your power uh, your power would be made available uh, for me to communicate that your power would be made available for us to listen and to hear that your word would shape us and change us into the image of your son and it's in Christ's wonderful name I pray amen so Philippians 2 verse 5 have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus 6 who speaking of Christ Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now, uh, that's a bit of a peculiar phrase, that though Jesus was in the form of God. Well, what does that mean? Uh, If you were to look at that in in its original meaning, uh, the idea of form there, it's an outward appearance that accurately displays the internal reality. And so uh, a, a more simplistic way to say that is Paul is saying, though Jesus is God, Okay, his outward appearance of God is simply showing the truthfulness of an internal reality that in his essence, Jesus is completely and fully divine. So Paul's saying, though Jesus, being God, and here comes a bit of the peculiar part, did not count or did not consider uh, equality with God something to be grasped. Well, the idea of grasp there. Uh, can be confusing. What does that mean? Well, if we just take our English understandings of that term or our common usage of the idea of grasp, we really use it in two ways. The first would be if you're explaining something to me or attempting to explain something to me and I, I can't understand it, I would say that that's uh, out of my grasp, that's beyond me. I don't, I don't grasp what you mean. Now, if that's the way Paul's using it here, then this is the way that verse would read. If we were to change it up a little bit, say, though Jesus is God, he actually didn't understand what it meant to be God. Now, if that's what Paul is writing, then it becomes contradictory, it becomes self-defeating, and it becomes nonsensical, that how could you have God not understanding that he was God? So we can eliminate that from being the possibility of what that verse could mean. So what would be another way of us understanding the idea of grasp? And this gets a lot closer to the original meaning here is is we have things, when we hold them, they're within our grasp. So this Bible here is within my grasp. I am clinging to it. Now if that's what Paul means, and I do believe it is, that here's what he's saying is, though Jesus is God, was God he did not consider equality with God as something to be clung to or something to be held on to tightly. Or another way to think about that is though Jesus is God, he did not consider the privileges of his deity to be clung to tightly. That he was willing to let go of all the comforts and all the privileges of heaven Right, that, 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 that everything that would become true for him if he took on flesh, if he knew he had to let go of some things. And in order to accomplish the Father's will, Christ did not consider the heavenly comforts as something to be clung to tightly, but was willing to let go and come to earth as a man. Okay, so what question comes out of that uh, reality of Jesus this morning, this would be the first of our three questions, is this, in the pattern of Christ, knowing that he did not consider uh, the heavenly privileges and comforts of something to be cl- uh, clung to tightly, and in light of that pattern, our question would be, what are we unwilling to let go of? What are we unwilling to let go of? And let's frame that up even uh, with a few more specifics uh, uh, for the Christian and non-Christian here this morning. So let's take the non-Christian first, that that if if you would permit yourself and permit me to, to push you just a little bit, is to say, what are you unwilling to let go of? What are you clinging to that's keeping you from even considering that the reality of Jesus might be true? I'm not even asking you to, to place your faith in him. I'm saying, what, what's the barrier? What are you clinging to uh, that you're unwilling to let go of to even allow you to consider that the biblical claims of Jesus might possibly be real and accurate? You know, one thing may be, if this is you, uh, you may be clinging to this idea that you will be ridiculed as ignorant and unintelligent were you to believe such a strange myth of, of God coming to earth as, as man, uh, that he was born of a virgin, that uh, he defies everything we know of the physical world being raised from the dead as an adult after crucified on the cross, that that simply would bring you too much intellectual ridicule because God forbid it even be possible to be a thinking Christian. Because in the academic world, or maybe in your world, the idea of an intelligent thinking, thoughtful Christian is an oxymoron of the first degree. Uh, Are you clinging to that? What's the barrier there? Or, or maybe, and oftentimes most likely the case is, uh, maybe you know that if you were to allow yourself to believe in the truthfulness of Christ, that you reigning as king over your life would no longer be allowed. That maybe our sinful patterns of living and the lifestyle choices that we just want to do would have to be let go of if Jesus is king. Okay, so what is, and by the way, Christians struggle with that one too, as far as the Lordship of Christ in every arena of our life. But to the non-Christian this morning, I would just ask you to, to consider Is there something you're clinging on to too tightly that you won't even permit yourself to consider the truthful claims of Christianity? Now, to those of us who have, by God's kindness, called upon the Lord and repented of our sins. What are you clutching too tightly that is driving a wedge of intimacy between you and Jesus, that you know that at some level your intimate fellowship with God is not what it could be or maybe not what it once was. What are you or what am I clutching to? That's saying, God, you could have preeminent reign over every other arena of my life except this. And I'll tell you one that's oftentimes uh, brought to our attention during a holiday season is uh, bitterness or unforgiveness towards family maybe towards friends, grudges that we've been holding on to. Uh, And by the way, Paul would say specifically on unforgiveness, if that's what you're holding on to, you're just not going to forgive someone. You can't believe they would hurt you. You can't believe they'd make those decisions. Paul would say, uh, and this is me, this is the new Living Jamie translation, is unforgiveness is a very unique poison that gives the satanic realm an entrance into your life is unforgiveness. But what are we clinging to too tightly? And and, and honestly the answer to that is probably as varied as the amount of people in this room this morning. And the wonderful thing about the Holy Spirit is if you are walking with the Lord here this morning, just me asking that question, I don't have to litter the room with examples. You know. I know. I know when the Spirit confronts me with that, is, is, is have I been clutching to something that God is, is convicting and prompting me to let go of? And, and I would say, if you're walking with the Lord, you know the answer to that question. Or maybe at the very least, you should begin exploring it and asking the Spirit to illuminate that for you this morning. So in the pattern of Christ, letting go, you know, high King of heaven, letting go of all comforts and privileges of the heavenly realm, to take on flesh and come to earth, the first question would be, what are we unwilling to let go of? Let's keep going. Verse 7. But emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Now, what does it mean that before Christ comes to earth and takes on flesh that he emptied himself? Well, uh, historically, there have been some some, uh, really wrong ways of thinking about this. And so one way this verse has been thought about or talked about is, is when Jesus emptied himself, he actually let go of all his, his divinity, all of his deity, and came to earth only as a man. So, so when it says it made himself nothing or, or, or your translation, which I think is probably a better way of reading it, emptied himself. It's saying, yes, he was God, but then there was this time period here on earth when he wasn't God. He emptied himself of that and only existed as a man. Uh, well, again, that, that's both a theological and philosophical impossibility. God, by his very nature, can never stop being God. If he could, he wouldn't be God. And if we just read through the life of Christ as recorded in in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it is abundantly clear that his divine power is continually on display. He walks on water, he calms storms, he, he makes the blind see, he heals the sick, he raises Lazarus from the dead, he says and pronounces forgiveness of sins, And it is very clear from all of the gospel narratives that Jesus is God. And yet it's also abundantly clear from all the gospel narratives that Jesus really was human, that he got tired, that he slept, that he ate. That he drank, that he showed human emotion, that he was tempted to sin uh, in, in very heightened ways uh, by Satan in the wilderness. That it's very clear that Jesus was God. That Luke would tell us uh, that Jesus grew in wisdom and stature. Uh, he grew physically. He grew in favor with God and with man. That that the classic confession. Uh, that revolves around the person of Christ is that Jesus is truly God and truly man without confusion or separation. Well, Jamie, how does that work? I've got no idea. No idea. That's not know the Bible teaches it is true. And that is, is one of the things in the Christian faith that brings us into this realm of mystery. That there are some things about God that the Bible says is true that we simply can't fully understand. And that keeps God other than us. And we need him to be like that. If we could figure out everything about God, we would refuse to worship him. So there is a mystery there as to how this can be true of Jesus. But the Bible says that it is true. Okay, so what does it mean that he emptied himself? He said what it doesn't mean. What does it mean? And this is where the English is a little bit confusing. Uh, Christ emptying himself is actually him adding something. So what does it mean to empty? It means that he emptied himself of only being divine and adds to himself humanity. So when it says that Jesus emptied himself, it is tied to the preceding verse. It is letting go of divine comfort and privilege. It is letting go of only being God. It doesn't mean he stopped being God. It means that he let go of only being God and adds to his deity true and full humanity. And this is, if you'll think upon this with me, this truly becomes for Paul and for us, the greatest example of humility in all history of humanity is you have the high king of heaven come to earth as a human. Now, let's bring it further into view. If you, When you think about Jesus, and you're probably like me in this, which doesn't put you in good company, but when you think about Jesus. Most often, I think about a a 30-year-old adult male ministering, teaching, healing, power on display, discipling uh, his inner 12. I think of adult Jesus. And yet, we know that is not the way Jesus came to earth. He didn't come as an adult male. That Christ, and I paid a lot of money to get a master's degree in this. He was born a baby. Now, why is that significant? Our God, the high king of heaven, relegated himself to having his diapers changed. It is the greatest possible example of humility that human history has ever seen. That the God of the universe, the King of kings, the second person of the Trinity, the one whom the Bible says the Father uh, used to create everything, that all of creation was spoken in and through and performed by the person of Christ. So the very hands that made everything came to earth as a baby dependent on human hands that he came to save. That he, as an infant, was relegated to not even being able to control bodily functions. He was a real living baby. And what Paul is trying to get Christ's followers to see is if God would do that, what could possibly be beneath us? And we begin to see just how petty our little disagreements, especially inside of church, become in light of the logistics of Jesus becoming man. When we start to argue about how we should dress, which way we should worship, what translation of the Bible should we use, you know, whatever. what it is in, 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 in your context here at 1st of Ann, but if, fill in the blanks with whatever it may be, all those moments we begin to see our pride on display, and they just become so silly when we think about the high king of heaven coming to earth as an infant. And so what question would rise up out of that text? Uh, It would be two ways to phrase it, but, but let's go with this one. Where is your pride most fully and clearly on display? Men, just ask your wife. Where is our pride most fully or clearly on display? And when the Spirit shows that to us, That's a moment for repentance and change. Because I assure you, if you want to have the who's most prideful competition, I can put up a pretty good fight. And what's what's so shameful, just to admit, is I walk into most rooms, most rooms, not every room, thinking I've probably got the best ideas, the best understanding, Do we just not understand if everybody would listen to me how much better things would be? Look, where is your pride and my pride most fully and clearly on display? What's beneath us? See, when we start to kind of go what's beneath us, it shows us where our pride's at. I had a family member... (laughs) over Christmas one time say I'd never even drink coffee with a Democrat. (laughs) Well, sounds like a personal problem. (laughs) I mean, seriously, would someone's political persuasion so devalue them as a human being that you couldn't have breakfast with them? It's pride. It's pride. That's what it was for one of my crazy uncles. I don't know what it is for you. I know what it is for me. But in light of God taking on flesh and becoming man, we've got to let our pride be confronted with the example of Jesus's humility and let the Holy Spirit go to war within us so that we can be uh, a like-minded in this direction that Paul's called us to. So, what are, what are you and what am I unwilling to let go of? Uh, in the example of Christ, hiking of heaven, becoming an infant, uh, where is our pride most fully and clearly on display? And where do we let, need to let the Spirit go to work in putting that to death? And then lastly, let's look at verse 8 here. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death Even death on the cross. Now, here's one of the wonderful things about the Bible, if we really believe it's from God. So if we take Paul at his word in in 2 Timothy 3.16, where he says, All of Scripture is God-breathed. Now, I'm going to save you a lot of money. Don't go get the master's degree. The Greek word for all there means all, all, every bit of it breathed out by God, which means uh, every phrase, preposition, every arrangement of, of every sentence, the meaning behind it, that God has superintended through the Holy Spirit uh, by human authors to give us exactly what he would have us uh, read, to learn, to know. And, and why do I say that for this verse? What Paul could have stopped at several points in verse 8 and still made a powerful preaching moment. He could have said, and Jesus was fully obedient. And that would be powerful. That would convict us. We would have to look at our life and say, can I honestly say that I'm fully obedient to God? And those that would say yes would say, well, you just example that you're self-righteous. So you're not fully obedient to God. Okay, so uh, you know, I, if you had a, a, a video recording of the you know, last 24 hours of my life, you wouldn't have even let me preach this morning. Okay, and if I had one of you, we wouldn't let you in the door. We're all in that boat. We know we're not fully obe- fully obedient to God. Paul could have stopped there, but he didn't. He says that Christ was obedient to the point of death, and he could have stopped there. Fully obedient to the point that it cost him his life, that he gave his life to the mission of the Father, be a powerful preaching point, to have we given all of ourselves over to the great commission of God, to make disciples of every nation, to teaching all people to obey, to, to share the gospel, to plant seeds, to, to, to see people come to faith, to see them baptized, to raised up in the church, that giving all of ourselves, all of our life over to the Father's mission and call upon our life. That would have been a powerful place for him to stop, but he doesn't not only says that he's obedient, not only says that he's obedient to the point of death, then he gives us this indispensable detail of death on a cross. And the Bible does not know detail for detail's sake. It means something that it's in here. So why why that depth of uh, of specifics this morning? or not, not this morning, anytime you read the Bible. Uh, to die on a cross in a Jewish culture, uh, and, and Paul quotes this, uh, that, that and he learns in the book of Deuteronomy, that to die on the cross in a Jewish culture is to publicly be stated that you are a curse and that God has rejected you. That's what it meant for a Jewish person to die On a cross, that you are cursed and you are rejected by God. That's why they wanted Jesus uh, put to death in that way. That the Jewish community, the Jewish leaders, that they wanted their world to know this is not the Messiah. This is a false imposter. And we're going to prove it to you. See how he died? Do you really want to place your faith in someone who's cursed and rejected by God? That's why they wanted him killed in this manner. Now, the tragic irony that they missed there is, but God's Word promised that someone would have to come and become a curse and be rejected at that moment so that the curse would be lifted from us and God's acceptance from us could come freely. And so, death on a cross In the Jewish world, made Jesus suffer not just physical death, but complete and total cultural rejection from his people. And yet, Jesus didn't just die on a cross in a Jewish world. He died on a cross in a Jewish uh, world, as far as his immediate surroundings, but controlled by the Romans, And the Romans would only crucify foreigners and slaves. So not only is he on the cross enduring physical pain, he's rejected uh, by the Jewish people as a curse, uh, a a person uh, from God. And then the Romans only give him a death that they give to slaves and foreigners. Their own citizens were considered too valuable to kill in such a way. And yet, again... The tragic irony for the Gentile world is the one that they kill as a slave is the only one that can set the captives free and the one they murder as a foreigner is the only possible person that could bring us home to God. And so Paul says Jesus, yes he was obedient and yes he was obedient to death but he's obedient to death on a cross. His faithfulness and obedience to the Father knew no bounds. And so our third and final question this morning would be this. In light of the pattern of Jesus, have we preemptively capped our obedience to God? Have we preemptively capped our obedience to God? What do I mean by that? Have we already said no to things that we just would not do? And a lot of times we've said no to them because we've already decided God would never ask that of me, He'd never ask that of me. But what if He did? Okay, so for me, and I'll tell you, and nothing I'm about to tell you is bad. Everything I'm about to tell you are good. It's a blessing. I love it. I don't feel condemned for it, and you shouldn't either. But, but I'll just tell you this I love my little cove in Collierville. I love it. Uh, I love that I know every car that's going to come down it. I love that I know every high schooler that I'm going to yell at for driving too fast. I uh, love my house love my yards, love watching my kids play out there, I love it. And that's all a good thing. Do you know when it comes, becomes a sinful thing, is what if the Spirit pricked my wife and I's heart and called us overseas or, or called me to another pastoral position, and we very clearly were being told to go And I say, no, I could hit a golf ball if it goes straight and land it in the yard of my kid's elementary school, which is a great school. It takes me six minutes to drive to work. I get tons of time with my family, we're pretty safe, pretty comfortable, God, no. here's the reality in that moment. And again, you fill in the blanks for you this morning. Here's the reality in that moment. The precise time we tell God no, what we truly worship is revealed. So when we preemptively uh, cap our obedience and we say, God, I'll go this far but no further, whatever that moment is for you, reveals the true object of our worship. And again, good things only become bad things when we worship them. And we learn that we worship them when we choose them over God. And so what is that for you? I don't, I don't know. But have you preemptively kept your obedience to God? Whether that be your career, your housing situation, your checkbook, trying to control every aspect of our kids' lives. I don't know what it is, but where do you tell God no? And in that moment, our true objects of worship are revealed. Okay, concluding thoughts, concluding thoughts just on on all of this in this whole Advent season. And preaching during Advent, you need to be gracious with your preachers during Advent. Christmas and Easter are really uh, a wonderful and peculiar times to preach. Because if church is any normal rhythm of your life, you kind of already know what the message is going to be. Come to church on Easter, you know you're going to talk about Jesus raising from the dead. You Come to church during Christmas, you're only talking about Jesus in a manger. And when you become familiar Uh, with this over time, it's easy to consciously or subconsciously relegate it to this realm of irrelevance. You've heard it before. And so oftentimes we do preach on what happens at Christmas, but we need to go a little bit further and say, but what does it mean? What does it mean that Philippians 2, 5 through 8 are true? Uh, uh, Lots of things, but let me conclude with two. It means two very simple and profound things. It means... One, that love is real, it means it's real. Two, it means God is near. That, that what does all of this mean that Jesus did that? Love is real and God is near. What I mean by love is real is that if God comes to earth and that really happened, then agnosticism and atheism and naturalism is totally removed and love becomes a very real thing. Now, if you're here and you're of an atheist or agnostic or naturalistic position, uh, uh, welcome, so glad you're here. We'd love to have a wonderful friendship with you. If you're going to be intellectually consistent, uh, love while you can experience and feel it and be a very loving person, it ultimately isn't real for you in the way that I'm talking about. Because any atheist or naturalist, if you're going to be intellectually consistent, All we are are spontaneous uh, 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 chains of chemical reactions. And so when I go home to my wife today, I don't say, uh, uh, baby, I love you. I say, I feel this for you because chemicals are going off inside of me and they're telling me to say this. It's not real. I'm at the whim of. But if God comes to earth and that's true, then love has depth and substance and a reality that no other system of belief could ever offer. Love is real, and when God takes on flesh and comes to earth, it means his nearness to humanity is undeniable. And so as we tie a bow to use a, I guess a wrapping metaphor, on the Advent season, may we be encouraged that the truthfulness of Christmas and the story behind the story makes love's reality and God's nearness absolutely undeniable. Let's close in prayer. God, we do ask that your Spirit has been kind to us this morning. We ask that uh, in your power that we did justice and honor uh, to your name and to your Word. And may your Spirit move uh, in my life and in all of our lives here by really causing us to answer the questions that come from this text. It's in Christ's wonderful name I pray. Amen.